Thanks, Casey. <coughs> so I'm, I've been trying to get this in my pocket, but it was making noises. Let's see if I can do it again. I got a loud back pocket. There it is. Hey, guys. How's everybody doing today? Oh, man. It's good to be with you guys today, you know? I, um, I was walking in this morning, and I was writing this in my sermon last night as I was prepping it, but I think uh, I just don't really have the words, but to s- I couldn't think of a better way to say it, so I'll just say it. I really miss you guys. Some of y'all are like, I've never met you, bro. <laughs> no, I... <laughs> I know that a lot of you in this room, you know, we've, we've had seasons where maybe we were roommates, maybe we were, you know, doing ministry at Richland together, at UTD, maybe we were at Northeast Garland, or I don't, I don't know. Somewhere along the way, we were, you know, our paths were crossed, and uh, I, church plants are, are fun, and they're really ex- exciting, and I love what I get, I love the stories that come out of them, but I, but I think walking in this morning, um, I don't know, I was just like, oh, Carlo, I miss you, man. You know, Ryan, I was like, shoot, Casey, I'm just like, man, everybody, you know? So I just wanted to say that. Kale, Austin Rowe, I miss you guys. I miss playing four hours of pickup basketball. (laughs) And my hips and knees start hurting. (laughs) I miss all that. But I'm really excited to be with you guys today. I'm really excited to talk. I feel really honored to get to talk on this topic of how to navigate race conversations as a learner. How to navigate race conversations as a learner. And um, I've been thinking about uh, race for, for a long time. In some ways I feel like, I've all, I don't remember a time in my life where I wasn't thinking about race. Um, and my story is unique, just like every person in this room. And so often, you know, one of the things I tell my uh, sociology classes, because uh, I teach at Richland College and at UTD, is I'd say, but before we start this class, I just want everyone in this room to know that everyone in this room, you're all sociologists, every one of you, because you've all lived and you've all had experiences where you're trying to make sense of this complex, crazy world around us. The only difference is maybe I've gone through certain classes where I wrote long papers about a specific topic. But everyone in this room, you know, we've all had the human experience of trying to make sense of this thing called life. And race is a component of this thing we call, we call life. This, this, this categorical way that we put people in boxes and maybe label and maybe even if we find ourselves judging and condemning and dismissing and forgetting about all these all these symbolic I don't know ways that we navigate race play themselves out and we've all we and, and we're all part of this thing together there's no I'm in or I'm out there's I'm participating or I'm avoiding but, but we're all in it. And so I just want to say that I feel really honored to get to be here to share my perspective 
Um, in addition to my experience, in addition to things I've re read and conversations that I've had, but I also feel honored because I think it, it, it really means a lot to say that, to see a body of believers set space to say, hey, we're going to talk about it, you know? We're going to step into it, and we're going to participate. And I think that there are brothers and sisters in Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ of color that, you know, are observing these kinds of stories happening at East Plano, and they're very encouraging. They're very encouraged by it. So I'm not going to lie. Sometimes when I talk about race or when I'm in race conversations, it's very fatiguing for me. Like, it's very physically fatiguing and mentally fatiguing. That doesn't mean it's bad. It just means sometimes after these kinds of conversations, I go, I'm tired. <laughs> I feel very tired. And I think there's this idea maybe that as Christians, we always need to be ready and prepared and excited and positive about these conversations. But remember that scripture says that Jesus was a man of sorrows. I think that there were some things that it says that Jesus looked at the crowds and had compassion over them because, because I think he felt profoundly like, man, what are we doing, you know? And, and I get these glimpses of Jesus' heart for people in seeing what's in front of him, but still knowing what it means to carry his cross. And I think that's the call for us in these conversations, is we find ourselves in a mess of a society, in a mess of a world, but we're still called to carry our cross. And we're still called to talk about, about things. Sometimes when I have conversations about race, internally I'll say, are we still talking about this? But I want to say that any problem worth, worth solving is ultimately a problem worth talking about. Do you have issues in your relationships? Well, they're probably going to stay there until you talk about it. Issues in your marriage, issues with your roommates, issues between you and God. If you're sensing it, it's, 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 it's probably a bell reminding you that these are things worth talking about. Not one and done conversations, but maybe you have a season of conversations. But any problem worth solving is a problem worth, talk, worth talking about. Any problem worth solving is a problem worth talking about. And I think it's so profound sometimes that even our, the issues between us and God play themselves out in our relationships. I think, I think in, in, in preparing this sermon, I, I found they're like, well, that's a sermon within a sermon, you know? There's, there's so many, there's too much to talk about in terms of race. How do you begin? How do you even enter? It's like some, if someone says, hey, I want you to approach that rainforest, but approach it in the perfect way. <laughs> At some point, you just have to start walking towards it and make an observation about where you are, what you see, what you noticed when you were standing far away, and what you're noticing as you're approaching it. And I think that God wants us to approach this topic, to acknowledge how big it is, to acknowledge how vast it is, but to be okay with it. God isn't surprised by racism. God isn't surprised by the issues of race. In fact, it's all, what, what if it's always been there and we're the ones waking up to it? What if, what if it's always been there? And what if we're the ones finally going, oh, it's always been there? We'll talk more, more about that here in a little bit. 
And if churches are wanting diversity to be a main goal of theirs, you're going to have to talk about the diversity. You're going to have to talk about it. So I do feel tired at times, but I also feel honored at times. It's okay to feel both at the same time. It's okay to feel tired, but it's okay to feel honored. And I think if you're having these kinds of conversations with people, it's a privilege. Because on the one hand, it's them saying, let's talk about it, even though it is fatiguing. But I want to say this. If it is tiring for you to talk about race and to have these kinds of conversations, then I think maybe you're, gonna, you're getting a glimpse into the experience of many brothers and sisters in Christ who have felt that fatigue for a long time. In preparing this sermon, I, I knew there was so much to say, but it's like that with any topic. There really is an infinite amount to, to say. But a little bit about me, I studied sociology in college. Sociology is just the study of groups of people, their behaviors, their ways of interacting with each other and the way they interact with the world. And race is a category that people group in, that people group towards. So talk, studying race was just a part, was just an aspect of studying different groups like gender, different businesses, organizations, countries. For the last 10, 10 years or so, I've taught sociology at Richland College, um, recently started teaching at UT Dallas. The topic of theme and race, it's always fascinated me ever since I was a little boy. I was, I was raised in Toronto, Ontario, and uh, Toronto has long been recognized by the United Nations as the most multicultural city in the world. So it was normal for me growing up, as you know, a first or second grader to get off school and then walk across the street and go to the, um, the Jamaican Mini Mart and get these like deep fried beef patties because they tasted amazing. Then I would go next door to the Korean Mart and buy these like Korean ketchup chips. <laughs> then I would go next door to the Vietnamese Mart and get these like little mi mini Vietnamese coffee drinks, you know? It was just the world that I grew, grew up in. We would, we would, we, it's, I, I remember just having this deep sense of, oh, this, this is normal to me. So even as a little kid, I was fascinated by, by culture, even being the child of immigrants from Ethiopia. It's, race has always interested me in general. Culture has always interested me in general. The way cultures interact and navigate the world we live in has always interested me. But obviously, as a young kid, you don't even have the words to try to understand it, but you're just, you find yourself curious about it. But I also want to say that race it's, it's never quite been just a topic for me. It's been a, it's been a lived experience for me. It's been a lived experience for me. I remember um, in, in fourth grade, we started learning about Martin Luther King. And it just hit me as just even thinking, like, why, why, are the, why is he fighting that battle? Like, why is that? I remember being in fourth grade thinking, so he had to march and fight to get laws passed that said, when you hire people, you can't say, that's the color of your skin? Sorry. <laughs> I remember thinking, why, why was that the battle that he had to fight? And I, and I remember, and I, I was born in 1988, 
And I remember even as a fourth grader thinking, that, all that happened in 1968? That was only 20 years before I was born? And even getting a sense of 20-year-olds that I interact with on the college campus who will make comments to me of, I can't believe I'm 20. <laughs> These 20 years have flown by like this. Even as a fourth grader, I remember getting the sense of like, whoa, we're not too far removed from these issues, from these battles that were being fought. Not even to mention the couple of hundred years ago, the battles that were fought by our brothers and sisters who had to stand on Capitol Hill and say, you know what, we think black people should be considered human beings. We're willing to have that debate. Share your reasons why you think they shouldn't be considered human beings. And I think of the battles that we're fighting today as a church, as brothers and sisters of Christ, and I really hope, I really hope that our grandkids, our great-grandkids, maybe they'll look back on our generation and say, man, we're thankful they fought these battles of inclusion, of church diversity, of listening to one another's stories. We're thankful for the battles that they fought today because they paved a way for the kingdom to be lived out. So race has never just been a topic for me. It's been a lived experience. But for maybe some of you, race has been just maybe a topic you want to learn about, and that's good. You want to study it. You've been observing it for a while. It's hard to escape it. But it's the difference between a house and a home. If I asked you, describe to me what makes your home your home to you. It'd be really weird if you said, well, we have four walls. We have about seven doors. We have 22 cabinets. I'm like, wow, that sounds like a boring home. <laughs> Describing your home to me is, describe how you feel when you walk inside. Describe the people you live with. How do they, how do, how do they love you well? Tell me about how you can rest at your home. Tell me, how you, tell me how your home is a place for you to be like, ah, I'm home. A house and a home. And I think with the topic of race, for a lot of people, it's, it's always been a home to us. But, but for, for others, race, it's, it's, a, it's a house they want to learn about and they want to understand. And I want to say both groups are important, and I've been in both groups. You have to learn, because at, at some point, you, you, you have to venture out from your home. And you have to know that it's, it's a big world that we live in with vast experiences. But also, if you spend all your time just studying the house, you forget what its, what its purpose is. Its purpose is to be a home. So how to navigate race conversations as a learner I think it has to be a home to you because race is made up of people. People have never been, people weren't just houses to Jesus to study and observe, but I think Jesus really stepped into people's lives because he knew that people aren't, that, that this is our home. This is our shared life together. So how to navigate race conversations as a learner, I think this has to become a home to you. It's a home to you because it's a sermon about people. I think the sermon should rightfully be called How to Navigate Conversations with People as a Person. 
not just how to navigate race conversations as a learner. You're navigating people. These conversations about race, they're, they're hard because we've gotten ourselves into a mess. <laughs> I love conversations about race because they create space for, for transformation and for people to, to, to learn things through experiences. But one of the things I really hate about conversations about race, and I say hate because I know that it really is hard for me to take my thoughts and what I feel and find words for it. I hate that in these conversations about race, we're so quick to condemn or dismiss or isolate because of a wrong sentence someone will say, or a wrong inflection of a word, or the way someone will, and, and the way it'll make us feel, so we'll respond by cutting them off. I don't think that's how Jesus did it. I don't think that's how Jesus interacted with people. And it breaks my heart to see it, one, happening in the college setting, but also it's happening in the, in the, in the church. It's happening in the, in the church. We've gotten ourselves into a mess, or maybe, We've just found ourselves in a mess. We've found ourselves in a mess. Conversations about race are messy, but I don't want to say that messy, messy doesn't necessarily mean bad. Kids are messy. That doesn't mean they're bad, they're just being kids. And I, and I think the wisdom in that is we begin to realize, oh, adults are messy too. We all are. And maybe if you don't like the word messy, maybe the word disorganized, disheveled, out of place, conversations with race, if you have the sense of like, what are we talking about here? Where are we going? What direction, where's that person's idea gonna land, you know? That's, o that's okay, because these are messy conversations. It's never been a linear track, but it's always been this shared life we're trying to live together. I would love to tell you that I get to talk about race today because I've always had the right answer, and I've always said it in the right, in the right way, Truth be told, sometimes I've hurt people with my, with my ignorance. Sometimes I've said the wrong thing. Sometimes I've dismissed others. Sometimes I've made people feel small. Sometimes I've thrown around facts and data not to bring people together, but because my own ego wanted to feel smarter than the other person. Sometimes I've come in with my agenda and I've, and I've been blinded to what God wanted to, to do. Conversations about race are messy because of our own sin and also because of the world's sin. And I want to tell you this, that navigating conversations about race as a learner won't make things any less messy. Have you ever found that the more you learn, the more messy things get? You thought you, thought you knew about culture and you started learning about it and you're like, oh, yeah, I don't really know that much. You thought you knew about maybe what planting a church meant and you get, get into it and you realize, okay, okay, they didn't, they didn't tell me that. You thought you knew what marriage was. You thought you knew what raising a kid was. You thought you knew what entering your 30s or 40s was. But you know what, the more you learn, the messier it gets. But what if I were to tell you that it's always been that, that way? That's how God designed life. If you think about it, that's how God designed the universe. If, if it's just this perpetually expanding expression of creation, why should our life be any different? We're just continuing to embrace complexity. The more you learn, the more messier things get. A few years back, I realized that other than my middle school education on Native American history, I really didn't know anything about Native American history. So I, I was like, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read about 
Native American history, our brothers and sisters who, you know, this thing we call the United States of America, they were here, you know, 25,000 years before us. And, and let's, so I, I, read a, I read a book called, it was called Bury My Heart at, at Wounded Knee. And the book was just a compilation of handwritten letters by, from Native American uh, tribe chiefs written to the U.S. government and kind of their correspondence back and forth. It was between like 1785 and 1885. And I thought I had a good grasp on what U.S. history was and Native American history, and, and it, 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 it gets more complex than you, than, you, than you think. You think there's a good guy and a bad guy. You think that this is how it all played out. But no, that's not, that's not, how, it, that's not how life ever was. I wanted to learn about Malcolm X, so I read the autobiography of Malcolm X. Trying to, I wanted to understand the complex politics of a complex man, and yeah, it, it got more com- complex. It got more complex. Once you learn his story and what happened to him, and then what started happening towards the end of his life before he was assassinated, it, anyone who paints a simple picture of anything is usually being a little dishonest, at least. Over the last seven years, I've had countless students in our Richland ministry um, come to college as first-generation college students, and they're the children of, um, a lot of them are children of undocumented uh, migrants from South America. I thought I had a good idea of what this immigration thing was, and then I'm meeting these students, and I'm realizing, oh, it was never simple. It never was. It's, 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 It's a myth if you think that it's simple. The more you learn, life naturally gets more complex. And it keeps getting more complex because you don't just learn more about the stories of people, but you really learn more about the evil of the world. I've read way too many stories of the ways in which segregation and Jim Crow, how it's shaped and perpetuated systems of inequality. I've seen one too many clips of unarmed civilians being shot by police. I've read one too many accounts of Native American tribe leaders writing to the U.S. government, offering to share their land and their food, only only to have their food lines cut off and starve. I've listened to one too many young stories of young first-generation college students, curious if they'll ever find a place in our country where they belong. Yeah, it keeps getting more complicated. But I do a disservice when I avoid these conversations. I do a disservice when I choose ignorance. but that's how it's always been. How to navigate race conversations as a learner is knowing it's gonna get more complicated. It's gonna get more complicated. You think you know something, learn a little bit more about it. You think you know your parents, get to know them a little bit. You'll see just how vastly complicated of people they are. You think you know yourself? Spend some time alone. See the, see the thoughts that start rising up. You might leave with a sense of, who am I? Life is bound to get more complicated. When you give your attention to something, you begin to see, oh, yeah, that myth I've been telling myself to make myself feel good about this complex world, yeah, that's never been true. It's never been true. Man, I've been watching The Lord of the Rings. The last, last time I saw them was like seventh grade. And back then, I think that I just kind of viewed them as like Star Wars 2.0. I think I, I, was in the, I was in the movie theaters, and I was just waiting for the battle scenes, you know? 
Like, I was like, why are these long dialogues with the elves? Why are they talking for so long? Why do the trees take so long to speak? <laughs> but I've been watching them again, and I've, it's just been, I'm like, oh, so much profound wisdom in the Lord of the Rings. I want to talk about the Lord of the Rings for a minute. There's a scene towards the end of the Fellowship of the Ring where Frodo, he's standing on the bank of a river, and they just survived this attack from the orcs. And he's standing on the river looking at this, and you can just tell he's, he has all these emotions welling up inside of him of like, what did I just get myself into? And he says honestly, um, kind of within himself, what he's probably been feeling for a long time, but, but he's been pushing down. But before he went on this journey, uh, he, he had this peaceful life in the Shire. Listen to what it says about the Shire. Life in the Shire was nice. Hobbits have been living and farming for many hundreds of years, quite content to ignore and be ignored by the world of the big folk. Middle Earth being, after all, full of strange creatures beyond count. Hobbits must seem of little importance, being neither renowned as great warriors nor counted amongst the very wise. In fact, it has been remarked by some that hobbits, their only real passion is for food. A rather unfair observation is we also developed a keen interest in the brewing of ales and the smoking of pipeweed. But where our hearts truly lie is just in peace and quiet, the good tilled earth. For all hobbits share a love of all things that grow, and yes, no doubt to others our ways seem quaint, but today of all days, it's brought home to me, it is no bad thing to celebrate a simple life. Frodo had a simple life of peace, and here he is on this journey. Gandalf's gone, Boromir is killed, Merry and Pippin have just been kidnapped. And Frodo honestly says to himself, he, he says honestly, he's like, I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish the ring had never come to me. And you hear Gandalf reply, so do all who live to see such times. But it's not for them to decide. All you have to decide is what to do with the time that is given you. All you have to decide is what to do with the time that is given you. Frodo has encountered a world that's infinitely more complex than he ever could have imagined. He's encountered evil that he can't even begin to wrap his mind around. And he's honest about it. I wish, I wish this ring would have never come to me. But Frodo's journey, it changed him. Even later on in um, the return of, of the king, when someone asks Frodo about going back to the Shire, he says, there's no real going back. Though I may come to the Shire, it will not see the same, for I shall not be the same. Where am I gonna find rest? The more I've learned about race, the more it's changed me, the more it's shaped me. Because the more I learn about my brother and my sister in, in Christ, there's no way to avoid that it changes you that it shapes you, it wounds you. When you hear about the suffering, when you hear about the pain, when you see it, and when you realize 
You're not that far removed from it. It changes you. There's so much to say in a sermon on race. And I don't go to this church, so I can say whatever I want. There's, you know. point, point number one, y'all suck. <laughs> So what I want to do today is I want to give you guys three words. And each word, maybe it's just one of the three that stands out to you. Maybe it's all three. But these three words, my prayer for you is that they would be internalized. That as you learn about race, as you have conversations about race, they would be reminders of how your posture should be in interacting within these topics. Word number one, spaciousness. Word number one is spaciousness. Word number two, pliancy. Pliancy. And word number three is warmth. Word number one, spaciousness. Word number two, is pliancy, and word number three is warmth, warmth. I'm gonna talk about each word. The first word is spaciousness. In John 8, 36, it says, so if the sun sets you free, you'll be free indeed. In 2 Corinthians three seventeen, it says, now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. There's freedom. Spaciousness is another word for having a sense of freedom. Spaciousness means you, you feel safe to move around and navigate. You feel safe to move around and navigate the confines of your own thoughts, your own emotions, your own conversations with people. And I will tell you that in conversations about race, a lot of people don't feel spacious. They don't, they don't feel free to navigate and learn. Have you ever tried to learn in an environment that you don't feel safe in? It's very difficult. Have you ever tried to learn when you're feeling intense amounts of shame? Very hard. Spaciousness is required if, if you're an artist, if you're a musician, a dancer, a painter, because if you're feeling inspired, you want space to move around and explore. Expressions of art usually start with a thought, but if you don't feel safe to explore that thought, you're not gonna grow. Spaciousness is required in a conversation. Do I have racial prejudices? Racism's bad, I'm bad, don't let people think I'm racist. Do, but when you're spacious, you can say, do I have racial biases? Let's, let's explore that. Does Christianity have racial prejudices historically? No, because Christianity's Jesus, and if, if Christianity's Jesus, then what does, what does that say about the church I go to, my family, the pastor that I look up? Spaciousness gives you freedom to explore and to eventually maybe walk away to a new question. 
to go to something else that's inspiring you. Spaciousness is of the utmost importance because if you're not spacious, you're stuck. If you're not spacious, you're stuck. I've learned the hard way that condemning people and shaming people gets them nowhere. And I think I get glimpses of what Jesus meant when he's saying, why are you trying to take the speck out of your brother's eye? Why? I've had moments of, oh, that's why. Mm. Spaciousness is important for problem solving as well. Racism is a problem, and it's worth being solved. And if you want creative solutions to problems, you need space to explore. You need space to explore. God is spacious. He makes room for all of us. In all of our past, in all of our sin. You ever thought about that? This is what I meant. There's like 15 sermons within a sermon. It's almost as if when God said, go to all nations, what he's saying is, hey, go there and make space for them. (coughs) Often Christians have gone to new places and said, hey, make space for us. (laughs) But God is saying, go, make space for people. Spaciousness. We serve a spacious God. When your mind is spacious, you're able to let go of usual ways of thinking, usual patterns of thinking. You can tell if you're not spacious, and I'll tell, I'll, tell, I'll tell you how you can know if you're not being spacious. You can feel it physiologically. You can feel it in your shoulders tight, tight, tightening up. You can feel it in your breath quickening. You can feel it in your thoughts racing. It's, a, it's fine. Acknowledge it and, let it, and let it and let it pass. God created us mind, body, soul, spirit. It really is all connected. And I think sometimes these mental blockages, they, they really show themselves in our bodies. Maybe that's a good prayer. God, make me more, more spacious. I don't know how you're going to do it, but I pray that you would make me more spacious. Now, just because you're being spacious, it doesn't mean you agree with everything that everyone's saying. It just means I'm making space to hear what you have to say. And in a country where for centuries the spaces were reserved for for a particular race, of a particular gender, being a people that says, hey, we're going to make space. There's room here. Spaciousness. The next word is pliancy. The first word is spaciousness. The second word is pliancy. The word pliancy just means you're flexible. It means you're adaptable. It means you bend, but you don't break. It means that you're allowing yourself to be influenced. Notice how I'm not saying you're allowing yourself to be convinced. You're allowing yourself to be led astray. It just means you're letting yourself be influenced. You're letting yourself be loved. You're also letting yourself be hurt. You're letting yourself be rejected, but you're also letting yourself be accepted. Pliancy. The first word is spaciousness. The next word is pliancy. How do you know if you're being pliant? 
if you can say, tell me more about what you just said. Even if that opinion of yours really wants to come out. Tell me more about what you just said. <laughs> I really, uh, tell me what. <laughs> I'd be like, you are being pliant right now. Thank you. But a lot of us can't even get there. Pliancy. You know, pliancy is important. Back when we, we, we used to go to New Orleans during the Christmas break to put on a Christmas show for these, for these kids in New Orleans, anyway. And it was this inner city ministry, and my job for the week was just to play basketball with the kids. It really wasn't the best gig I've ever had. And the funny thing is we would play basketball, but none of the kids wanted to pass the ball. They just wanted to cross you over and dunk on you and embarrass you. <laughs> and uh, so you, if you were on someone's team, and here's the thing, every kid wanted to do it. It wasn't just like one ball hog. Everyone was trying to dunk on everyone. And I love basketball. It really is a beautiful sport. If you can work as a team, kind of position yourselves to where you move the ball in an effective way, you really can expose another team's weakness if you're willing to do it. But none of the kids were willing to do it. So Eddie Barajas and I made this rule. We were like, hey, you have to pass the ball five times before anyone is allowed to dunk on someone. I don't know. <laughs> and the kids were like, man, I don't want to do that. So everyone would just kind of try to be the last person the sixth person that got the ball. <laughs> They're like, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. <laughs> and you're the last person with the ball and you can dunk on whoever you want. I feel like sometimes in small, in small groups, small groups have just become a, I think, factory. Well, I think, but I think, but I think, yeah, but I think. I think small groups should have a rule where you have to say, tell me more about that five times before you can say what you think. As if you know what you think. As if you know what they think. As if you know that they've completed their full thought. <laughs> tell me more about, about that. Da -ba -da -da. Tell me more about that. Spaciousness, pliancy, being able to bend. Huh, yeah, I never thought of it like that before. I picked up Rick Watts from the airport last week, and on the drive, we, we were like, the first five, 10 minutes, I'm like, tell me about Australia, Victoria, British Columbia, tell me about your wife, and I'm like, all right, I got a question about Paul when he fell off the horse and he was blinded, all right, Rick, can we start talking about that? And I'm, I'm, like, and I'm like, how do we measure spiritual experiences and mystical experiences, and I start talking to him, and he goes, well, you know, mate, I've never really ta I thought about that before, tell me what you think about it. And I'm like, I see what you're doing there, Rick. <laughs> So I start sharing my thoughts on it, and as I'm sharing it, Rick genuinely says, hmm, I've never thought about it like that before. Keep talking. I'm like, dude, you know Greek and Hebrew. I don't need to be talking right now. You need to be talking. <laughs> but he truly, and, and he kept telling me this throughout the, the week. He's like, you know, I've been thinking about what you said about Paul and the horse thing. And, and, I, and, I, and I've been, as I was prepping the sermon, I saw in Rick a very pliant man, a brilliant man, but he's also willing to engage and, and be moved a little bit as he engages with you. He was a, he was a real gift to come to our ministry. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, I made myself a slave to everyone 
To the Jews, I became a Jew to win a Jew. To those under the law, I became like those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Though I am free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak. I become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might save some. Paul's communicating, hey, I've got space for people. And I'm pliant. I got space. And I'm pliant. I see pliancy in Paul. I see a flexibility in Paul. And the last word I have is warmth. Spaciousness, pliancy, and warmth. I want to argue that warmth is probably the most important one of the three. The fruits of the Spirit, you know, we've all heard them before, love, joy, peace, patience, and gentleness. The, the fruits of the Spirit, by the way, aren't like a pick and choose thing. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like, yeah, gentleness is one of them. Gentleness is one of them. A lot of the times in conversations about race, the last thing we are is gentle. Gentle with ourselves and with others. Warmth, warmth helps you be open to the unexpected. Warmth helps you be open to, oh, when I breathe in the mic, it's really loud, oh. Warmth helps you just be open to what, just what's going on around you. Are you a warm person? You're probably the last person who should be asking that. Why don't you ask some close friends of yours? Hey, am I a warm person? And whatever they say, be spacious towards it. Be pliant towards it. Some of you in this room probably aren't very warm. And that's fine. I think that God still changes hearts. The reality is, is that race, I want to say this, race as a category, it's not going anywhere. Acknowledge it as a category. But the moment you begin to prejudge the categories, the moment you begin to label, the moment you begin to condemn, discriminate, you're not living out warmth. Warmth allows your mind to accept things that it would, it would ordinarily reject. An example, if you disagree with someone about something, you must be able to listen in an accepting manner even though you disagree. After all, until you truly understand them, can you truly disagree with them? Until you truly understand someone, can you truly disagree with them? I think that's why Jesus, there's never a point in the gospel where Jesus says, well, I just disagree. Because I think Jesus just knew, oh yeah, this, this person's hurting. Mm, this, this person's angry. Spaciousness, pliancy, and warmth. How to navigate race conversations as a learner? Make yourself spacious. Make yourself pliant. Be warm. Look at what the opposites of those words are, restricted, rigid, and cold. When you think of race conversations as a whole, would you say that we're more rigid and cold than we are warm and spacious? I think the people of God, to be subversive in our culture, have to approach these controversial topics with spaciousness and warmth. Spaciousness, pliancy, and warmth.
Now, you may be thinking, Sirach, race conversations create conflict. I want to say this to you. If you have no conflict, you have no honesty. And if you have no honesty, you have no community. And if you don't have community, you don't have intimacy. (laughs) If you don't have conflict, you don't have honesty. And if you don't have honesty, you don't have community. And if you don't have community, you don't have intimacy. A lot of us want intimacy, but we're unwilling to go through conflict. A lot of us want community, but we don't want to be honest. A lot of us want to be honest, but we don't want conflict. We have a choice, and it's not between no conflict and conflict. It's constructive conflict and destructive conflict. When you're spacious and when you're warm and when you're pliant, when you have two people that are both being spacious, both being warm, both being pliant, I've, I've had some powerful spiritual experiences, but there's nothing like connecting with someone and you're just making space for God to move between you. Because I want to share with you guys a mystery about the character of God. When you make yourself more warm, God will send people to you for you to warm. When you make yourself more spacious, God will send people into your space for you to be warm to. When you make yourself more pliant, God will send you more situations and ideas and predicaments that are going to show you, I need to be pliant right now. I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it in Scripture. I think that's how God works. Because a lot of us want God to use us, but we're saying, God, use me, but I'm rigid. God, use me, but I'm cold towards my brother or sister. God used me, but I don't have much space for anybody else. There are plenty of cold people in the world that need to be warmed. There are plenty of rigid people who need a spacious friend. Will you be that warm person? Will you be that pliant friend? Worship team, you guys can start coming back up. Maybe it's all three words. Maybe it's just one of the three. Spaciousness, pliancy, and warmth. When you find yourself learning about race, learning about someone's experience, I'm a spacious person. I'm pliant. I'm warm. I find myself saying that to myself as I, you know, feel, feel the tension rise up. And I believe that we can be the kind of people as we navigate these conversations. Even though you may, be, have, you may, having the, you may have the posture of, are we still talking about race? Guess what? If you're warm and spacious and pliant, you can ask that from a warm place. And you could say, oh, yeah, we are still talking about it. <laughs> we are. Yeah, we are. Why? Oh, yeah, we are. 
Maybe that sense of, are we still talking about it? Maybe God, you know, in, in the book of Ecclesiastes, there's a line where it says, God has set eternity in the hearts of men. And I think when we have those moments of, are we still talking about race? That's that seed in us from God that's saying, yeah, yeah, in the kingdom of God, yeah, this won't be an issue. It won't. I've given you that sense. But right now it is. Spaciousness, pliancy, and warmth. <laughs> I'm gonna say a prayer as, as I uh, wrap up. Thank you guys for having me. Thank you, Casey, for having me. Father, I just want to say a prayer of blessing over this, this church. I pray that it would be a church that's spacious in these conversations. I pray that it would be a church that has pliancy, that's able to bend and flex. But most of all, God, I pray that it's a warm church. And we've been, I've been in so many conversations on race where I know that I haven't been warm but I've been angry, I've been hurtful. I'm so focused on finding an enemy, so focused on finding who's in the wrong. God, I pray that we would have a tremendous amount of warmth. And we know that, we know that you're a God that calls us ultimately to you. I pray that we would see the ways that we're ultimately the ones harming ourselves. That we'd be able to have space to see that, pliancy to see what another option could be, and then warmth to let you move. We pray these things in your name, amen. Thanks, guys.